Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Welcome to another one of our online editions of the OHC's book and print talks. Our book and print talks are presented by University of Oregon faculty authors whose recently published books were supported by an Oregon Humanities Center research fellowship and or an Oregon Humanities Center subvention grant to help cover publication costs. If you have questions at the end of the talk, please use the chat feature of Zoom. I'll moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled the closed captioning function. You can activate captions using the live transcript option at the bottom of the Zoom window. This talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing later today on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker, Teresa May, Associate Professor of Theater Arts at the University of Oregon. Professor May's areas of expertise include eco-dramaturgy and eco-theater, native and indigenous drama, environmental humanities, environmental justice, community-based performance, theater for social change, and sustainable theater management. She is the author of the book, Salmon is Everything, Community-Based Theater in the Klamath Watershed, which was a semifinalist for the Kennedy Center's American College Theater Festival's uh, David Mark Cohen National Playwriting Award. She is co-editor of Readings in Ecology and Performance and co-author of Greening Up Our Houses, A Guide to an Ecologically Sound Theater, the first book on sustainable theater management. She's the co-founder and executive director of Earth Matters on Stage, an international eco-drama festival. And she was the founding artistic director of Theater in the Wild, a site-specific community-based theater in Seattle. Professor May will speak to us today about her newest monograph, Earth Matters on Stage, Ecology and Environment in American Theater. Her work on the book was supported in part by an OHC 2017-18 Faculty Research Fellowship and an OHC CAS Publication Subvention Grant. Welcome, Teresa. It's great to have you here. We're looking forward to hearing about Earth Matters on Stage. Thank you so much, Paul. And um, thank you, Melissa and, um, and Peg and Jenna for um, for doing this and for having me and uh, incredible thank you to all the people who came for sharing your lunch hour with me, especially on Zoom and you know we all have Zoom, Zoom fatigue. Um, I, uh, I want to uh, share my screen now so I think you can go to a speaker PowerPoint side by side kind of mode. Um, if you wish, um, I figure that uh, there's more fun things to look at than um, um, here, uh, okay, slideshow from current slide. So it's really an honor to be here. And um, uh, I wanna um, thank, um, of course, um, the Oregon Humanities Center for the 2017 fellowship, which really helped me, um, whoops, helped me uh, finish this book. Um, and complete a lot of the final research. I also want to thank the other, the very rich soil here at the University of Oregon, um, embodied in the Center for the Study of Women and Society, um, the College of Arts and Sciences, Department of Theater Arts. Um, I hold on two seconds. I need to shut a door. My dog is barking. Have an aging 15 and a half year old Australian Shepherd who sometimes has nervous issues. Um, at any rate, you know, I, I, an editor once said to me, dear friend, said, um, a book takes a village. And that really kind of set me free to go, oh, all right, it's not just me, it's all of these support mechanisms, this whole community of scholars. So I just really want to thank everyone who is not only here today, but in these extended circles of relation that we have through our scholarship and through our creative work. Um, colleagues, students, friends, family, of course, here is said 15 year old Australian Shepherd Milo. Um, <laughs> and uh, really, I um, also, before I go in today, I just also want to acknowledge that this book was written on the traditional homeland of three different indigenous people of North America, the Duwamish people of Puget Sound, the Wiat people of what we now call Humboldt Bay, 
and the Kalapuya people of what we call home now in the Willamette Valley. This is land that inspired and nourished me. Each has its own history that unsettled and motivated me. And I register my respect and my gratitude, my acknowledgement first there. So that's at the top of the acknowledgement section of the book. What I want to do uh, first off is just kind of set uh, some framework that comes from the introduction so that then I can do a, 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 <laughs> a flyby of the seven chapters and then loop back to one of the chapters and actually read a section um, from that. The preface is called uh, Eco Theater, the Eco Dramaturgy, and that really charts my own journey as an artist. Um, and then as someone who was part of a, of a development of a subfield over 10, 15 years, several of those people are here today. Thank you for, um, for being part of that, that network, that circle of relation, um, Downing and Nelson, and I think there are some others too. Um, and that um, framework then becomes the methodology that gets used in this book. Um, the title of the introduction is taken actually from a student comment. Um, I was in my, my theater in climate change class and, and after reading several plays, a student kind of threw up their hands and said, um, uh, well, where's theater been while the world's been falling apart? And and that really, you know, as much as it came from that impulse of, you know, wanting theater to make a difference, I thought it's a call for a reckoning. It's a call for a history. And, um, and that's what this book is. It is a history. Um, from the introduction, it, it, I, I write, American theater has represented some of the central environmental debates of the 20th century. At times, it has intervened to strengthen democratic and ecological values. But many plays and productions championed US environmental imperialism and were complicit in the project of plunder. So these chapters read plays and performance in the context of key moments in US environmental history and in the context of emerging environmental thought as it develops through the 20th century. A lot of this history is familiar, for example, to environmental studies majors, but not to theater students and not to artists generally. And those are really who I wrote the book for. I wrote the book for the artist that I was, you know. I wrote the book for my students um, and for artists um, in, in the field. Um, it's also a personal journey because I am also implicated in these, in these histories, in these stories, not only as a settler descendant, but also because my grandparents, my own grandparents to whom the book is dedicated, were vaudeville performers, performed in light opera early in the century. And so, you know, they were part of a lot of what I am critiquing in early American theater. The other thing I look at in the um, introduction is the way in which theater is um, a muscle of theater actually is a site that exercises the muscles of empathy in a democracy. And those qualities that it has as being a, an art form that is immediate, takes place right now, that is communal. We come together to tell our stories. Um, and that is embodied. We use our own bodies to tell these stories. Those qualities of theater, which unfortunately we are not experiencing right now. So, all of us in the field are like, you know, sort of hanging on by claws. Um, but those are, the, those are the qualities of theater that make it a powerful force for democratic dialogue because for an hour, for two hours, people come together no matter who they are and they suspend their disbelief. So for, for this short period of time, they say, I'm willing to imagine into the life of others. I'm willing to grant other people's lived experience the stories that I may not know as, as real, as valid, as actual. I'm willing to let that into my heart. So that's kind of what theaters, I think, is capable of doing. 
Um, and so I talk about it as a, um, as a site of civic generosity um, in the book. Um, and then the last thing I do in the, in the introduction is introduce this framework of eco-dramaturgy, which really has three parts. One is just like making theater, making theater in response to the environmental crisis and environmental justice, putting those things at the center of writing a play. Um, the second is called sustainable sonography or, or green material practice. And it really looks at what's all the stuff we use, you know, how much lumber, how much styrofoam, what's our carbon footprint. Um, and then the third sort of arm or branch of eco-dramaturgy is theater scholarship, um, historiography, criticism that resists nature as metaphor and does that by foregrounding a material ecological given circumstances to expose what may be explicit or implicit environmental, environmental justice meanings and messages in a play or production. Um, some of how I do that in this book is by analyzing theatrical representation in light of ongoing uh, patterns of environmental degradation and environmental injustice, including settler colonialism examining how artistic work propagates and intervenes in environmental debates and ideologies, examining and illuminating how a given artistic work engages perhaps the dramatist's own or the audience's own relationship with the land, community, and place by centering indigenous ways of knowing and lived experience. The first chapter, um, lays out the frontier mythos as the ecological ethos of the US coming into the 20th century. Um, it, it looks at through this play of, of Augustine Daly, Daly's Horizon, how theater was partner in the project of US expansion and military occupation of indigenous lands and the ecological violence of settler colonialism. This play uh, is a highly racialized narrative that prefigures and lays out Frederick Jackson Turner's frontier thesis some 20 years before he um, brings it together as a, as a theory. And it, it actually advocates in the end, vigilante violence to protect settlers and you know, businesses and railroads. Um, and then the next piece that I look at in this chapter each chapter I look at about two, two to three um, plays and production is um, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West, which you know many people have, have looked at, have critiqued from Richard Slotkin to Phil Deloria, but no one's really talked about the way in which a theater director named Steele Mackay, who was a Broadway director, worked with Cody, took what was essentially a circus act and and created this narrative, this cinegraphic, uh, all these cinegraphic elements that communicated a very specific narrative. And that's the narrative that got propagated. That's the narrative that is still ubiquitous around us. Um, and, and that's the show that toured Europe until 1906. Um, so, um, some people might wonder, well, do we really have to go back to the frontier and unpack that again and deconstruct that again. And, and um, you know, and, and I just start that chapter as a point of departure by saying, uh, yeah, until it stops showing up on US stages in this kind of way, like a bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson, which was a 2010 production in New York musical um, produced by first by the public theater um, that then started to tour the United States and was stopped by, um, by native theater artists, by allies. Um, and it, it, you know, it just brings home how unconscious, at least in the arts, how unconscious perhaps we still are. Um, and that, yeah, we need, to, we need to bring these things forward until, until we stop doing this. Um, chapter two then moves on and looks at that moment um, when um, John Muir um, and, and Gifford Pinchot kind of had their, their break around um, Hetch Hetchy, 
but what gets ingrained there is this idea of nature or land as either a scenic wonder or a natural resource. Um, and that that actually, that framework actually masks the um, uh, resource extraction uh, uh, going on and, and certainly the plays on um, happening in the East uh, about the Western lands presented this romanticized, feminized and fetishized uh, narrative um, that, that masked what was actually going on. Um, that binary thinking also, um, it doesn't include relationship, right? It doesn't include kinship. It's both, uh, both frameworks are about commodification. And this is the framework that moves in to the, through the 20th century. We have these two, two ways of understanding our relationship with land nationally. Um, Uh, chapter three then moves into the period um, of, during the depression and the aftermath of the Dust Bowl. And in this chapter, I look specifically at the Federal Theater Project, um, which was part of the WPA and really became this kind of dog and pony show for New Deal conservation programs and public works projects, including the building of Grand Coulee Dam. AAA makes this really still compelling case for solidarity between industrial urban workers and rural farmers, but it kind of doesn't make a distinction between rural farmers who are family farmers or sharecroppers and big ag and corporate farms. So um, the politics, politics kind of never came together. Um, it tended to, to, theater during this period tended to characterize um, the land as a worker and really valorized technology. Um, chapter four um, looks at this iconic musical Oklahoma, which is an adaptation of Cherokee playwright Lynn Riggs' Green Grow the Lilacs. This musical's um, premiered in, during World War I, has just filled with kind of jingoist politics um, and, and sentiments, and then that carried on into the anti-communist era after the war. The musical runs for 10 years straight someplace around the world. It runs for, what's two from nine, it's why it runs for seven years on Broadway and then it tours around the world. So it really becomes this, this image, this icon of, of what it means to be American. And this is so ironic that the state of Oklahoma then becomes like this stand-in for the nation state because um, um, Lynn Riggs was a playwright much concerned with Cherokee nationalism. And, and other authors, Jace Weaver and others have just have noted the way in which Oklahoma tends to erase the diversity of stories that really is um, the, the history of Oklahoma. For example, the phrase Indian territory in Luke's play becomes just the territory in Oklahoma. So I look at that history, you know, what's being represented. Um, Oklahoma takes place supposedly in 19, 1906, 1907, right at the, the, the statehood. Um, you know, what is that history? Then what's the history going forward and through the Dust Bowl? and how the musical then blots out those, um, those complex stories. And I look specifically at the character of Judd. Um, and if we understand him as a multiracial character, he's variously marked in the dialogue. Um, then this famous smokehouse scene, which you see in which Curly the cowboy is enacting uh, uh, essentially a lynching becomes really chilling um, and of course, continues to saturate the, the Turner-esque uh, frontier um, framework. And it's also interesting that right at, the, at this time, post-World War II, as this musical is playing, playing in different touring companies and, and community theaters and playing around the world, that um, tribes are being terminated by states um, and and new land takings are happening. Um, and then I look in contrast at Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman, both huge Broadway hits, right? Um, 
opens six months after Oklahoma closes. So they're very, very close in, in their residence. Um, and Miller's salesman just is, a, is like a rebuttal um, in every way to the ideology that Oklahoma carries. Um, chapter five then um, looks at um, how in the 1960s and 70s, the environmental movement was still focused on wilderness preservation, um, the great outdoors, and seemed pretty oblivious to the ways in which social justice and environmental degradation intersected. But dramatists were not oblivious. And this chapter looks at how mainstream and grassroots um, activist theater uh, prefigured some of the central concerns of what would become the environmental justice movement a couple decades later. Teatro Campesino being central here in its early environmental justice interventions and assertions of homelands through the mythos of Aztlan. And this is the chapter I'm gonna come back to in a couple minutes to read. Um, this next chapter uh, takes up how the ideas of the environmental justice movement started to really play out more directly on stage and how playwrights, both grassroots and main, mainstream playwrights started to take up um, these, these themes, these um, concerns, and particularly in plays that were um, uh, focused on a sense of place and the politics and the history of specific places. And then that raised also a lot of issues of representation, who gets to tell what story. Um, and so I look at um, Robert Jenkins, The Kentucky Cycle, which won the Pulitzer, and yet, um, in a way, the stories were stolen. He was you know, very much critiqued for the way in which he made hay of other people's stories. Um, and then the final chapter um, looks at what is fast becoming known as climate change theater. Um, plays that, that, and performances that really start to bend the very form of theater in order to tell Story, excuse me, about communities, not so much about individuals. Um, stories that happen across time and place, but stories that are also very focused in place. Um, these, many of these plays offer theater as a site of ceremony, uh, of grief work, and, um, and as a place to communally imagine into our uncertain future. And then the epilogue returns to some of the ideas in the, in the opening um, chapter about the civic use of theater and um, what good is it to come together to enact stories with our own bodies in present time and imagine into one another's lives. And that this is really, Opportunity to, to, as Monique Mojica says, spin possible worlds into being and to, and to project a world that is not broken, that can be sustained, not only for Aboriginal people, but for all people in this small green planet. Um, so I want now to, um, and hopefully, my hosts are keeping an eye on time because I want to save time at the end for um, some questions. But I want to just read a little bit from, uh, from this chapter um, about in particular, the play Raisin in the Sun. And you may remember reading this play in high school or in college. Um, it's the story of Lena Younger and her multi-generational family who live in a two-room apartment in Southside Chicago, and they're waiting for insurance money after the death of her husband and her children's um, father and grandfather. Lenny's son, Walter Lee Younger, wants to use the money to buy um, a liquor store, and Lena wants to buy a home in a yard with a yard where her grandson has room to play. And then later in the play, when she does, put a down payment, they are pressured by the white neighborhood committee to rethink their decision to move into an all white neighborhood where housing prices are lower. 
Uh, it won the Pulitzer in 1959. Um, and at that time, it was characterized as a universalist story about the quest for the American dream. And uh, it has often been characterized that way and taught that way. Even when I teach it, students will say, oh, it's a play about the American dream and everybody wants a home. Well, there's more. Um, an eco-critical reading of Raising the Sun foregrounds clues to the ecologies represented on stage, in, including human bodies and habitat, in order to examine the environmental implications of the younger struggle, including the racial and class-based oppressions and hierarchies that the play represents. Through the story of the younger family, Hansberry points concretely to the correlation and interdependence of long-standing racial inequities, poverty, and environmental degradation, thereby revealing how the felt experience of white supremacy plays out in the daily life of one family. Through the material ecological aspects of characters' lives, Raisin paints an intimate portrait of environmental racism at work. The characters' hopes for a better future, including a home place that nurtures their collective material, emotional, and spiritual well-being chafes against the stress that comes from living in an environment compromised by institutional racism born of colonial systems of exploitation. The white supremacy that the youngers face when they plan to move to a new home not only constitutes systemic environmental racism, but reflects and arises out of the historic abuse of land and bodies on which the US extractive economies depend. Hansberry traces the subtle ways those legacies infect and damage the day-to-day -day lives of those who carry that disproportional burden. Clues in the play to the larger environmental trends in the US at the time also show how Hansberry makes a claim to home place as an environmental right and foreshadows the tenets of the environmental justice movement 30 years on. Skipping forward to the play itself, Lena's commitment to securing a new home represents an act of fierce resistance in the face of very credible threats made palpable in the play. In act two, scene two, Lena's neighbor, Mrs. Johnson, stops by for a piece of pie. And Mrs. Johnson learns of the younger's plan to move to a new home and she reminds them of the risk. I guess you've seen the news, what's all over the paper this week about them color people that was bombed out of their place down there. You get so you think you're right down in Mississippi. Mrs. Johnson's story echoed real world events, such as that of the Myers family, which Ta-Nehisi Coates describes in the case for reparations. In the Mrs. Johnson scene, which was taken out of the play when it was first produced on Broadway, it was one of four scenes taken out. Hansberry implicitly calls out the racist acts of terrorism aimed to prevent families like the Youngers, not only from acquiring a home that would sustain their lives, but also from sharing in the wealth that the labor of their fathers and ancestors helped build. The resonance with Coates' case for reparations continues. When, when Walter Lee Jr. loses the insurance money to graft, the stage directions indicate that he starts to pound the floor with his fists, sobbing wildly and crying out, that money is made of my father's flesh. When Lena Younger realizes what happened, she also invokes her husband's labor labor now mined again by systemic theft in which her son has been caught up. I seen him grow thin and old before he were 40, working and working and working like somebody's old horse, killing himself. And you, you tell me you give it all away in a day? In Lena's fury, the stage directions tell us she raises her arm to strike him, but stops herself. The system that seduced her son into a venture that promised financial gain and the system that mined her husband's labor, never paying him enough to own a home or adequately feed his family are one. The next section looks more closely at really um, the embodied experience of key characters. 
economic system predicated on greed and fueled by graft and institutionalized theft finds its way into the bodies and long-term health of families like the Youngers. Radicalized, racialized, excuse me, racialized exclusion from the processes of wealth accumulation like home and business ownership is not merely a legacy of slavery. It is also the active perpetuation of racial exclusion that in turn results in toxic stress, reduced air and water quality, exposures to environmental contaminants, disease, and death. Mama Younger has already lost her husband and a child, and she is determined to resist and reclaim a home place that provides the most basic ecological foundation. That toxic stress, the long-term cumulative effect of poverty, insecurity, and racism has caused losses that continue to harm the lives and bodies of the Younger family. When it becomes apparent in Act One that Ruth is pregnant and planning an abortion, not an abortion that arises out of choice, but one demanded by the lack of space to live healthy lives, to raise healthy children. Mama recalls the infant death of one of her own and the toll it took on her husband. Big Walter would come in here some nights back then and slump down on that couch. I know he was down then. And then when I lost that baby, little Claude, I almost thought I was going to lose Big Walter too. Oh, that man grieved. I guess that's how come that man finally worked himself to death like a gun. Like he was fighting his own war with this here world that took his baby from him. Lena confides these memories to Ruth, testifying to both women's embodied experiences of the inhospitable environment that limits their freedom, impacts their health, and endangers their children. The world that took his baby from him is one documented in studies on infant mortality in urban communities marked by a lack of healthy food, adequate medical care, and space for children to play. The losses bolster Lena's resolve to claim a home place where her family might thrive. We don't give up one baby to poverty and we ain't gonna give up another. Lena's loss is an example of the slow violence of poverty that is perpetuated by institutional racism. Similarly, when Ruth calls the apartment a rat trap in scene one, her complaint is not a metaphor. Living conditions that require regular chemical pest control, rat poison, leaded paint, have marginal sanitation, a lack of fresh air and even light to grow a small house plant, constitute a kind of secondary violence that lands most heavily on children and pregnant women and the elderly. Scene two opens as mama and family members clean their small apartment and the stage directions describe that Benita, with a handkerchief tied around her face is spraying insecticide into the cracks in the walls. Playfully, Benita chases her younger brother with a spray bottle full of roach killer. While mama calls out, look out there girl before you be spilling some of that stuff on that child. Rachel Carson's 1962 research would show what women of color across the country already knew from their lived experience that the pesticides and herbicides developed as weapons of war but increasingly used in civilian homes and gardens impacted the health of society's most vulnerable populations. After that moment, Benita retorts, I can't imagine it would hurt him. It's never hurt the roaches. There's really only one way to get rid of them, Mama. Set fire to this building. Mama's response, well, little boy's hides ain't as tough as South Side roaches, foreshadows issues of eco-racism and environmental justice that would embattle many communities of color in the coming decades. Scene two offers another demonstration of the Younger's compromised habitat as Benita calls out the apartment window, Travis, Travis, what are you doing down there? Oh Lord, they're chasing a rat. The moment comes just after Ruth, Travis's mother, 
has revealed that she's planning to terminate her pregnancy, Travis enters the scene eager to recount his adventure to his mother. Mama, you should have seen the rat. It was as big as a cat, honest. Bubber caught him with his heel and the janitor, Mr. Barnett, got him with a stick and then they got him in the corner and bam, bam, bam. He was still jumping around and bleeding like everything too. That, there's rat blood all over the street. Ruth reaches out and grabs her son without even looking at him and clamps her hand over his mouth and holds him to her. The physical violence represented in the scene is as unsettling as the presence of the rat itself. Ruth's fear and impulse to protect her son from both are palpable visages of the dangers of an out of balance ecosystem where human children are at higher risk from chemical pollutants within and outside their home where they must fend rats and roaches to sleep or play. I'm gonna check about time here, just a moment, and then I'll read the routine a bit more. I'll read the routine a little bit more. It's sort of moving forward to another section, which is really um, looking at uh, acts of, of resistance and resilience in the play. Um, in, in, it's called Tending the Roots of Belonging. In act two, scene three, Lena's family present her with gifts, garden tools and gloves and a sunbonnet in anticipation of the gardening that she will do at their new home. It's a celebratory and um, defiant scene in which her children honor her love of the earth. And it's positioned right after Mr. Linder from the white uh, neighborhood um, um, committee comes and tells them not to move into the neighborhood. So it's a kind of response um, to, to the scene with Mr. Linder. Travis, Travis presents her with a hat, like the ladies always have in the magazines when they work in their garden. But Lena's love of gardening should not be confused with middle-class desires for suburban pastiche of the little house on the prairie. Rather, it is a signal of resistance and intentional autonomy consistent with the early civil rights activism and the rise of black nationalism signifying social, political, and ecological resilience emerging from her own connection to the land in the South. It is an expression of Lena's commitment to herself and her family. In Earthbound on Solid Ground, Bell Hooks writes of the relationship with the earth that verified for Southern Black folks what white supremacy with its systemic dehumanization of Blackness was not a form of absolute power given that no one, not even plantation owners, could make it rain. Even as black bodies were commodified in service of the nation's first cash crop, slaves and then later sharecroppers tended small gardens of their own, providing for their families, nourishing an intimacy with the soil that maintained a concrete place of hope in the face of white supremacy. In Raisin, Leonard refers to a similarly felt connection with the land, explaining that her desire for a garden, like the one she saw back of the houses down home, comes from her life in the South before moving to Chicago. Hansberry's play, while often and frequently taught, uh, excuse me, Hansberry's play, often produced and frequently taught in high school literature classes, carries the weight of its longstanding place in US dramatic canon. As such, the place-based, racialized, and economic particulars of the Younger's family struggle have too often been interpreted as a Black family's search to achieve what has been popularly understood as the American dream. But Lena's struggling houseplant is not just a metaphor for that ubiquitous dream. It represents her resilience. And when it's understood in terms of ecological relatedness and kinship, the little houseplant, which she carries with her at the very end of the play as they're leaving, the little houseplant points to the white privilege underpinning that dream. It sits on a windowsill, soaking up what little light there is as family members routinely tease her for the care that she gives it, 
Are you going to take that little plant to the new house, that raggedy old thing? Lena defends her attention by exclaiming, it expresses me. Lena's identification with the plant is more than symbolic. It is empathic and biochemical. She empathizes with the plant's struggle to survive on little light. Lord, if this little plant will get more sun, it's been getting, it ain't never going to see spring again. She pronounces early, she says that early in the play. However, the reciprocity goes further and becomes more material, signifying a relatedness that is also physiological by virtue of the biochemical exchange between people and plants. The family produces carbon dioxide for the plant, which in turn produces oxygen in exchange in human blood. The plant is thus kin, family. Raisin echoes ideas from the history of Black intellectual thought in the United States that reach back to Marcus Garvey and forward to Malcolm X. Rising Black nationalism is expressed through scenes that point back over the arc of history in which the Younger's ancestors were stolen from their home and lands uh, from their homelands to provide labor for extracting wealth from the land. But it also points forward, acknowledging, asserting, and celebrating African heritages. As a Black intellectual, Hansberry engages the ideas that would inspire the Black power movement. The scene um, that uh, particularly expresses um, the ideas of Black nationalism and some of the debate um, around it within um, the, the ongoing and growing civil rights movement. Um, it comes out in this scene where a Sagai uh, is talking about taking Vanitha back to Africa um, with him. And um, Vanitha challenges him. This is just after they lose the money. Beneath the challenges, I saw a guy who is a Yoruba, a Yoruban descent, challenges his vision of African renewal. She says, what about all the crooks and the thieves and just plain idiots who come into power and steal and plunder this, the, the same as before, only now they will be black. Asagai's response to her rightful despair lays blame on systemic injustice rather than the individual by asking, what was it your money that Walter lost and gave away? Would you have had it all if your father had not died? Isn't there something wrong in a house, in a world, where all dreams, good or bad, must depend on the death of a man? Through the character of a saga, Hansberry asserts and reclaims a connection among identity, home, and homeland between intellectual and cultural traditions in a vigorous and unabashed vision of a replenished future that is at once African and American. The claim of a right to a home place and homelands that is at the center of Hansberry's play would be at the heart of the environmental justice movement 30 years later. I think that's, I'm running out of time. <laughs> that would be all I read. But then that chapter goes on and looks at Teatro Campesino um, and also um, the play um, Buried Child by Sam Shepard. Um, so, Jenna and Paul, I'm going to stop my share now. I actually don't know what time it is, but hopefully there's time for questions. Thanks so much, Teresa, uh, for sharing uh, uh, this talk about your fascinating book, Earth Matters on Stage. Um, we, we have a few minutes for questions. So let me urge anyone with a question to just type it in uh, by using the chat function and I'll share the questions with Teresa. Uh, I'll start off myself with a question for you, Teresa. Um, the subtitle of the, uh, the book is Ecology and Environment in American Theater. And I just wanted you to take a minute to, to tell us, and I think we're getting a sense from uh, your account of the book, the way that you're defining uh, those terms, uh, uh, in, uh, environment and ecology, or ecology and environment, um, it seems like you you there's a kind of polemical definition behind some of those terms. Could you tell us a little bit about how you're understanding them? Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's a polemical definition. I'm using them in the title, of course, in a, in a you know 
popular kind of way. But there's a section of the introduction where I talk about words. And I talk about all the words that we use to refer to nature or the wilderness or the great outdoors or ecology, which is a science um, or environment, which uh, has a lot of different meanings that have both to do with you know, environment as in nature, but environment as in um, you know, the whole sphere in which my body exists. Um, and certainly in the theater, we talk about the environs of, of theatrical production. So in that section in the introduction, I talk about all those terms having histories of their own, um, being contested words, being um, uh, ones that are situ when they when they start to come into the popular lexicon, they um, you know they carry with them uh, vestiges of ideology, vestiges of of you know a certain um, uh, a point of view or certain discipline even. Um, so, so I'm aware of those contested terms of the, the um, slipperiness of them, um, but in that this is a book that's written for a general reader and for my students in that title, I'm using them as, um, you know, a, a, in terms of their popular understanding, ecology, referring to the way in which our bodies are sustained by air, water, food, each other land um, and I'm talking about environment as the way in which we reference the environment um, which includes us right so hopefully that I, I also just on on the note of language words have a whole section in there where I talk about the use of the word American and that that too is a contested um, term I use it because that's how it's taught at the American theater. I use it because most of the plays are actually wrestling with this, you know, what is, you know, who gets to be included, right? And who's excluded from that? They're all, they're all pressing up against that word. So it's in, it's in the title for that reason, um, because I'm tracking what, what that identity says that it is at any given time. And then in the last chapter, both of those playwrights happen to be of Canadian citizenship. So the word American, and even Teatro Campesino starts to bust open um, notions of what it means to be American. You know, their work is referring to histories that go back before 1849. So, um, so that too. Yeah. So our, our first question or our next question is from Sarah Steckel, who's asking, who says, says uh, she's been thinking about in her own work related to climate change and social justice about questions of scaling and systemic change measured against local specific and small changes. Theater, partly due to our cultural and historical moment, partly due to the form itself is a medium that does not scale easily. Can you talk about theater's either weaknesses in terms of large scale impact or its strength because of its locality and specificity? Mm -hmm. That's a great question because that, um, that way in which that theater has to typically focus on kind of, you know, the protagonist, the antagonist, you know, a contained uh, story um, in time and place, which is a classic framework, you know, comes from Aristotle, um, is part of what had theater be, you know, unlike the visual arts or even unlike music, you know, kind of come up against its own form as a limitation for addressing these problems, which um, have time scales that are, you know, decades, if not eons, that are problems that are, are uh, global in, in nature, um, but also very, very local in their impacts. So um, in the last chapter, I look at that and the way in which um, the bending of the theatrical form says, uh, I mean, Marie Clement's play, Burning Vision, is an extraordinary example of a play that transmutes time and space into a kind of hyper-present and asks us to imagine into relationships that we never thought, where we never thought about being connected. Um, certainly Raising the Sun is about those familial relationships which you know, we can understand, but she creates a community, a ceremonial gathering in that play across time and space and creates a kind of 
of hyper, you know, hyper realism. Um, and, in, and so in that way, she's made theater do the job of making those connections. Um, and I think, you know, um, even, you know, people writing uh, in, in climate change studies, um, I mean, in chapter seven, I use actually Kari's um, um, article when she talks about, you know, we need stories that help us imagine into our relatedness, right? And so theater can still do that, even though, even though it's looking at a very particular moment, it's those, it's those in a nutshell experiences that make, you know, help make those larger connections. So, so it's a great question. Yeah. So um, since you just mentioned Carrie and she's raising her hand, I will, I will uh, give her the power to unmute herself or I'm hoping to do that. Did it work? Let's see. There we go. There we go. It was uh, reluctant, but yeah. <laughs> I apologize if I uh, wasn't tracking fully the directions of how we should ask questions. Um, I just... You know, um, I do have a question, but I first just want to say that uh, reading this book and listening to you speak again, I just feel um, it's so profound the the way that your work has enriched my understanding of, you know, my history in this place um, and the ecological history, the histories of racial justice in this place. It is extraordinary. And I, you know, I, I'm not an environmental historian, you know, I've, I know sort of pieces of history in certain ways. I'm not a theater person um, in the sense that I don't know many of the plays that you've written about, but the way through these chapters that you detail so compellingly how theater has played this role in storytelling that's, that's underpinned colonialism, settler colonialism and colonial violence, ecological violence is, is it's just profound. So I just, I think this book is so much more than, um, you know, more, the more, I mean, I've read, you know, as I've read it, as I've listened to you talk about it, it's just so much more than it might, um, than one thing. It's, it's doing so many things at once. And so I just really appreciate um, that. And I was thinking a bit about, um, and also a little bit drawing sort of off of Sarah's question maybe, but um, I remember in your first or in your earlier book, Salmon is Everything, when Kathy McCovey talked about how her theater training, this is kind of about the role that you see theater playing in the world today in movements that might be kind of beyond what, um, uh, what's happening on stage per se, I guess, it's just because I think that I remember Kathy McCovey talking about how through the work with you, she came to understand this theatrical moment when she was being escorted out of this shareholders meeting in Scottish power and mm -hmm. thinking about uh, the importance of the video cam footage of, of what happened that, of, you know, the importance of that in the Chauvin trial. Um, I don't know if this is like too much of a stretch, but just thinking about, you're so compelling about the way you you talk about storytelling and a, the collective imagination, that sense of suspense, the, the way that, that theater and stories shape uh, our society. I just would be interested in any reflections about broader ways that, that you see that happening now. Um, first, thank you for your kind words, Kari. I'm really, really honored. Um, and uh, it was really fun to use some of your work in the final in the final chapter. Um, I I um, gosh, it, that's a big topic. So just maybe to stick with Kathy um, Kathy's experience for a moment. Kathy McCovey um, is a Karuk, um, uh, tribal member who I worked with on Salmon is Everything, who had never been in a play, never read a play, never probably you know she didn't. Theater was not something that was in uh, her world. And she was our cultural consultant. And then finally, she performed the role of Rose, um, which here Marta Clifford performed here at the University of Oregon um, a few years ago. And later, after the experience of actually being in a play and going through the rehearsal process and memorizing the lines and, and figuring out how she was going to, you know, um, uh, say them and, and keep herself, you know, uh, centered and, and from being too nervous and all of that, how she was going to let the natural emotion come 
come forward. It was just a, really a privilege and an honor to work with her as she, as she took command of this art form in a play. And then, um, I don't know if it was a year later or so, but she, she called me and she said, I just used everything I learned um, in, a, in a protest and a, and a, um, a, a session of public comment um, around the, um, the Klamath. What was that? Who was that? It was in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm forgetting who actually owned the dams at that time. Um, but she had an appointment to speak, right? She had her two minutes at the microphone. And, um, and after the break, they shut the microphones down and would not let Native people speak again. So she went up anyway, and she stood there. And she just stood there in her regalia, stood up straight, and she said, Teresa, I understood the meaning of a theatrical moment. I knew that my standing there in the light at a microphone that had been turned off spoke louder than maybe what I had to say in the first place. Um, and then as she walked off, all of her, her um, uh, community members came and walked with her and they processed up the aisles. It's very, very powerful theatrical moment. So to me, that just, um, you know, is testament to that theater training, the theater as an art form has gifts to empower, to support, to, um, uh, you know, not just illuminate on stage, but to actually engage people in claiming um, what they have to say and in, in uh, speaking into the world. Um, I, you know, the whole question about, you know, media and all the stories and different modes of storytelling, um, both journalistic and, and creative, I think, um, you know, it's probably, it's interesting, you know, that this, that this old, old art form is now, sometimes we think we're competing with all those other ways of telling stories. I don't think we are. Um, I think there's something very special about coming together in community in, um, in our bodies, breathing the same air, even as we exchange um, stories. Um, so, but yeah, that's a whole field that's probably beyond my, uh, my performance studies expertise to comment on. But, um, but it's a powerful time for stories. I mean, it's just powerful. So Teresa, the next question is, is from Marta Clifford, who you just alluded to in your last question. And, and she's ask, actually asking something which you've begun to answer, I think, which is, she says, you state that you thought theater could change the world. Do you still feel that way? Oh, that's kind of what I write. I guess that's the beginning of the preface, right? You know, when I was 20 and, and thought, oh, you know, I want to go into the theater because I think it can change the world. And there was evidence for that, right? You know, the, the, um, the Black Arts Movement, the Black Revolutionary Theater, Teatro Campesino, Red and Puppet, all those companies were, were really um, participating in activist work at the time. Um, so do I think it can still, do I, I think it can change worlds, plural, you know, and because I think Kathy McCormick's essay and your own, um, Marta has written a beautiful essay in the, the second edition of that book. Um, you know, our testament to that, that, that um, we change little by little, we change incrementally, and we change in relation um, to one another and, and theater is an art form of relation, you know, at its, at its very, essence it is about relatedness there is no character that delivers the whole thing there are points of view that we entertain for a while and somewhere coming out of that those relationships is a is a truth and a realization um, so yes with a small why um, so the next uh, comment in question is from Nelson Gray, who says, first, thank you so much for this wonderful contribution to the field. This is a cause for celebration. Nelson's question is, do you believe that the greater prominence of racial diversity on stage and in film will be a force for progressive social change in terms of environmental justice? Uh, I hope so. Um, many um, dramatists of color 
as you, as you know, um, I have to give a shout out to Nelson. He is um, a historian of uh, eco-dramaturgy of Canadian theater. Um, and, and also give a shout out to my colleague down in class who is a eco-dramaturgy scholar of European theater. Um, so lots of people here have been part of this conversation. But I think that, um, you know, that especially, you know, the environmental justice framework now says, you know, these are integrated and intersecting um, and mutually inclusive conversations, conversations about the environment and conversations about social justice. And, um, and so I think you can, I think, yes, I guess is my, my answer to that question, absolutely. And, and the more as allies, I mean, that's the other thing, you know, I think of myself as a, as an activist scholar and, and try, you know, this work is like trying to be, um, use my scholarship as an ally and to um, unsettle myself more and to unsettle others and to unsettle my, my very white theater. Um, and um, now I forgot what I was gonna say, but, but um, yeah, so, so, so the more that we can do that, the more that we can use our power to forward the stories that need to be told, I think that is an environmental um, act as well. Uh, so Nelson's raising his hand and I'm gonna, uh, I think I have allowed him to unmute himself. Let's see. What happened? Didn't work. Uh, sorry. No, that's okay. I just, uh, yeah, I can really, uh, I just, again, just I wanted to reiterate without taking up too much time, all of the things that Nori had said, and it's really exciting to have her here too, because I've used, I've, uh, you know, drawn on her work as well as Teresa Mays and Downings and all these other people in my, in my teaching. And I, I guess I just wanted to just express just really briefly um, that I've, you know, had the, the, the privilege of, of drawing on Teresa's work in my teaching in Indigenous literature, uh, working with Indigenous scholars, uh, co-teaching, and also with um, my environmental uh, uh, literature classes. And, and I don't know anybody who speaks about environmental justice with such eloquence, which is why I asked that question. Um, but that whole notion of seeing uh, more inclusivity, what that does to who we are as a, a, a without uh, without cobbling over those distinctions of histor of history, um, that that we start to be we begin to get a sense of what community might mean by hearing uh, hearing from the experience of others. Um, that's, I guess, yeah, I, I really, I, I, yeah, I just really think that it's good. I think that it, it, it's slow, but I think that it makes a massive shift in terms of what we understand ourselves to be, who we understand ourselves to be. And that includes a community that moves beyond the human. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Nelson. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your work. So uh, the next question is, is uh, from your colleague in the Theatre Arts Department, Michael Najjar, and, and his question is, what is your greatest critique of eco-drama as it stands now? What are the topics that are not being widely written about in plays within the genre today? My critique of eco-drama or of the critique, the, the theory, the scholarship about eco-drama. It's, I think it's eco-drama, yes, Michael? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, oh gosh, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think there's a real tendency, um, especially in plays, you know, written um, by those of us who carry white privilege to go to dystopia really fast. Like um, my, my husband, Larry Freed, um, who's here too, and I started in 2004, something called the Emos Ecodrama Playwrights Festival. Um, probably the first year, almost half of the plays that came in were um, kind of dystopian, um, post-apocalyptic. You know, and 
you know, and I understand that impulse, but it's an easy one. And you've got to read native plays to understand. And in the last chapter, I'll talk about this and use um, Kyle um, Powers White um, and his, his work that uh, the apocalypse already happened. You know, um, it already happened to people stolen from their lands in Africa and brought here. And, and it already happened um, to many um, communities of indigenous people on this continent. And so the commitment to stories, and that's why I end with um, Monique Mojica and, and, and theater as a site of generosity and, and as a place where the work um, is, is staying, I don't want it, it's so trite to say staying hopeful, but to literally spin new worlds into being, as she says, to carve out who we might be together going forward as communities that extend beyond the, the privilege of our own skin, right, and, and extend into other, the lives of others, um, including non-human others. And, and so I think that, um, I think that's, often missed by, um, you know, by those of us or people who carry that privilege that there's, there's not enough um, imagining into the future that will certainly come. Um, and, and um, you know, anyway. Well, Teresa, um, on that uh, speculative and hopeful note, I want to thank you so much for talking to us today about your wonderful book, Earth Matters on Stage, Ecology and Environment in American Theater. I want to also thank everyone who's joined us to hear from Teresa about Earth Matters on Stage. It's been a real pleasure having you all here. For more information about the Oregon Humanities Center, our upcoming sponsored events, and our UO Today interview show, or if you'd like to contribute to supporting our research and public programs, go to ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks everyone, we'll see you next time. Thank you everybody for coming, touch my heart. <laughs>